Welcome to the Cancer Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from a panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Metastatic Breast Cancer Treatment Updates. And this is a very important program for many of you on the call today. This is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. However, we want to focus on this call on metastatic breast cancer. And um, today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and a grant from Genentech, and I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have a lot of people on the call today. We have over 270 participants on the call today from all over the United States from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, and um, also from uh, frontier communities. We also have international participants on today's call, actually quite a few of them from Australia, Bangladesh, Canada, India, Kenya, Malaysia, the Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of global call as well. Um, the information presented will be by speakers from the United States, experts, speakers from the United States, experts in this field, um, and we do hope that you'll all be learning a great deal, and there will be a chance at the end for you to, po uh, to, to pose questions as well for us as well. Now, um, before we move on to introducing our first speaker, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask each of you, um, and those of you who are live streaming the call will be able to see the questions. And so I'm going to start with the first question. So I'll read the question, and then if you could just, it's a rating scale, so if you could just rate um, what you understand about this. So the first question is, on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand, I understand the current standard of care for the treatment of metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. Now, again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new treatment approaches, including biomarkers, diagnostic testing, and technologies, sequencing of treatments for metastatic breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand the role of precision medicine in treatment decisions about metastatic breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I know the questions to ask the healthcare team about preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. And then this is the last question. I understand clinical trial participation as a treatment option for metastatic breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And I want to thank you all who participated in this, uh, these questions. It really helps us to understand what you know coming into the program and also will help us as we plan future programs to, take, to keep all of this in mind. Now, it's really my pleasure now 
to move on and introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Erica Mayer. Dr. Mayer is Senior Physician, Breast Oncology Center, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Mayer will be addressing an overview of medicine breast cancer, including current standard of care in the context of COVID-19, new treatment approaches, including biomarkers, diagnostic testing, genomics, and sequencing of treatments, and the role of precision medicine in selecting treatment choices. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mayer. Thank you so much, Carolyn, and um, thank you, everyone, for joining the call today. It's so wonderful to have so many people listening in from all over the world, um, and I'm really excited to, to join our group today and to, to kick off our overview of metastatic breast cancer. I think we can all agree it's been a challenging past year and a half for everyone, but thankfully, I think as you will hear, there's been great progress in the management of metastatic breast cancer. This has continued despite the pandemic with multiple new developments and breakthroughs, which are definitely benefiting uh, patients who are living with metastatic disease. So to start, I want to review the basics of how we treat metastatic breast cancer. And this may be review for some of you or perhaps new information for others. Um, as a medical oncologist myself, our big focus when we're treating people with metastatic breast cancer is systemic therapy or body therapy for the disease, meaning giving treatments that travel throughout the entire body and can treat and hopefully kill cancer cells wherever they are. Local therapies, this includes things like surgery or radiation, are, remain important, but these play more of a secondary or adjunct role. No matter what treatment we are offering, we generally have two very important goals with our therapies. This includes both prolonging survival, of course we want to live as long as we can, and we want to maximize and optimize quality of life. And both of these goals are number one top strategies every step of the way. Now we generally have three main categories of systemic therapy which are available that we, we can be picking from. There are endocrine therapies, sometimes we call these hormone therapies, we have chemotherapy, and the third category is targeted therapy. Targeted therapy includes treatments that are very precise and very directed for breast cancer cells, trying to target these cells and trying not to damage or affect neighboring normal tissues. This category includes medicines uh, that we sometimes refer to as small molecule inhibitors that are often pills, as well as antibody treatments, which can be intravenous. Much of the exciting research that's going on right now in cancer care, which you're going to hear about from Dr. Matro in a few minutes, includes developing new drugs and new strategies in the targeted therapy category. Now, the medicines that are selected for each individual person depends on several factors. We have to consider what kind of breast cancer we are treating, whether it's hormone receptor positive, HER2 positive, or negative for the hormone and HER2 receptors, a subtype also known as triple negative breast cancer. We also have to think about what treatments has somebody already received. Could the cancer have developed resistance to these treatments? We have to think about the side effect profiles of all of our medicines and what's the risk of a toxicity for an individual person. Very importantly, we have to consider someone's preferences, a patient's preferences regarding schedule, side effects, 
or other important features about a treatment selection. We use all of this information to select therapies to best treat the cancer and help someone feel as well as possible and do as well as possible. In general, we want to keep the treatments going as long as they're effective and as long as they are well tolerated. If we see definitive evidence that the cancer is worsening despite the treatment, then it's time to reach into what I always think of as our proverbial toolbox and pick the next best tool, the next best treatment strategy. We are incredibly fortunate in the breast cancer world that our toolbox is very full of highly effective tools and there's many new tools that are in our development pipeline that are soon going to enter as treatment options. Now, there's some general paradigms we tend to follow when we're picking medicines based on the type of breast cancer we're treating. For example, if the breast cancer expresses hormone receptors like the estrogen receptor or progesterone receptor, then we want to be picking medicines from the endocrine medicine category to start with and try to stay in that category as long as we can. If the cancer expresses HER2 receptors, then incorporating medicines that target HER2 is a very important part of the treatment strategy, and we often want to do that from the very beginning. And for triple negative breast cancer, chemotherapy selection can be very important, as well as consideration of immunotherapy, medicines that activate our immune system for a subset of triple negative breast cancers. Ultimately, each individual person's treatment selection and treatment paradigm becomes highly individualized and highly personalized based on features of the cancer history, the treatment history, and of course, what someone's preferences are. This is definitely not one-size-fits-all therapy, but each person's journey is incredibly individualized and personalized. So next, I want to move on and talk about some of the new approaches in the management of metastatic breast cancer. You're soon going to hear, again from Dr. Matro, about some of the new treatment strategies that are coming out of recent clinical trials, some really exciting new research that's going on. But I want to mention the importance of learning as much as we can about each person's cancer in order to make the best treatment decisions. So in addition to the regular testing that I mentioned that's done in the pathology lab, testing for hormone receptors, estrogen and progesterone, and testing for HER2, there's additional features about the cancer that we nowadays need to know about in order to make best treatment selections. Some of this information we can get from the pathologist in the pathology lab. For example, as I alluded to, we want to test triple negative breast cancers for a marker called PDL1. This marker has become very important so that we can identify cancers that could benefit from the use of immunotherapy medicines. Again, medicines that activate our immune system, an example being a drug called pembrolizumab. There's other information that we can learn about cancers that goes beyond the pathology lab that involves analyzing the actual genes and the DNA inside the cancer cell. And we do this through a process called genomic profiling where we can analyze the DNA of the cancer cell. This is not our own DNA that we were born with, but this is unique to the cancer cell. And we're looking for mutations or changes that might be part of the reason why the cancer is growing. This type of, of analysis, which is called tumor genomic profiling, can be done on <clears throat> a sample of tumor from a biopsy, either an old biopsy or a new biopsy. 
Or alternatively, we can actually find tiny bits of tumor DNA in a blood sample circulating in the bloodstream. And this is sometimes referred to as a liquid biopsy. So we can use either blood or tissue samples as very helpful materials for this type of genomic profiling tests. Now, increasingly, we are, we are beginning to understand how to use the information that we learn from genomic profiling to help guide our treatment decisions. This strategy of using this very specific information about a cancer and applying that to make a treatment decision is what we sometimes refer to as precision medicine. So here's an example. For um, some hormone receptor positive breast cancers, there's a mutation that can be found in a gene called PIK3CA, sometimes known as PI3 kinase. It's estimated about 40% of hormone receptor positive breast cancer might have this change. If we find this change or this mutation, we are now able to offer somebody a relatively new targeted medicine called alpilisib. This is a pill medicine that targets the mutated PIK3CA gene. And in using this in combination with regular endocrine therapy, it helps the endocrine therapy work better and it helps better control the cancer. So that gives us an, a new and an extra treatment option to target the mutation. We would call that mutation actionable because it's, it's providing us a clinical action, something we can do when we learn that the mutation is present. We also are increasingly understanding um, uh, more about what we call endocrine resistance, meaning when hormone receptor positive breast cancer begins to get resistant to some of the hormone medicines. Sometimes this is accompanied by mutations in the estrogen receptor itself, something called ESR1. If we see mutations that have developed in this receptor, it can help us in picking future endocrine therapies that might be better at overcoming the resistance. So ultimately, there's an enormous volume of knowledge that we can learn from tumor genomic profiling. And we're just at the beginning of this process. In the years to come, we are going to see more and more ability to monitor cancers for developing mutations and to match these tumor mutations with very personalized and very specialized therapies. So uh, that reaches the end of a general overview for metastatic breast cancer. And I'd like to turn it over now to Dr. Matro to learn a lot now about new updates in the very exciting medicines that are in the pipeline and that are um, coming into our toolbox that we can be using for our patients. So I'll turn it over to Dr. Matro, and I'm very happy to take questions after our presentations. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mayer. You really did a wonderful, just a, just a wonderful presentation in setting the stage for today's program and really identifying, really taking people step by step in terms of really um, diagnosis and treatment and all the different options that people have. So thank you. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Jennifer Matro, and Dr. Matro um, is Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, Division of Hematology Oncology, University of California, San Diego Health. And Dr. Metro will be addressing clinical trial updates, how clinical research increases your treatment options, tips to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain in the context of COVID-19. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Metro. 
Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you, Dr. Mayer, for uh, a really wonderful introduction and setting the stage for uh, our discussion now about clinical trial updates. So uh, a lot of what I'm going to talk about is going to piggyback off of what Dr. Mayer talked about, uh, specifically this concept of precision medicine and targeted therapy and a lot of the, the recent developments and, and exciting developments in breast cancer treatment uh, is focused on those uh, that precision medicine and, and those uh, actionable mutations, targeted mutations. Um, first and foremost, when it comes to clinical trials, I want to emphasize that in general, clinical trials are open, they're ongoing, they're enrolling, even despite the pandemic. Uh, there was a brief period of time where things slowed down so that we could adjust protocols and, and make contingency plans, but things are have really opened up and um, there are a lot of opportunities out there uh, and the, the trials have, have adapted to some of the changes that COVID-19 has, has forced us to consider. Uh, so when somebody is diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, as Dr. Mayer mentioned, uh, it's really important for us to get a fresh tissue sample, either a, a tumor biopsy or a liquid biopsy, because those uh, genetic changes that can be detected in many breast cancers can help guide what medications that are already approved that somebody would be eligible for, as well as what clinical trials uh, would be a good fit for, for patients. Uh, and clinical trials and, and new medicines are, are similarly divided, this is the way that Dr. Mayer mentioned. So we have endocrine therapy, we have chemotherapy, and we have targeted therapy. Endocrine therapy is given for uh, women who have endocrine-positive or hormone-positive breast cancer. And we have had, over the last couple of years, several new uh, classes of medications that have already been approved and now become standard first-line treatment options. Uh, specifically, there are targeted medications called CDK46 inhibitors. So that's a class of medicines of which there are three, palbocyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib. And they all work very similarly at targeting the CDK46 uh, pathway that uh, when that pathway is targeted along with a hormone-driven pathway, we essentially can double the benefit that we see uh, with those combinations compared to hormone-based medications alone. So these CDK46 inhibitors can be combined with different types of hormone medication. Uh, aromatase inhibitors are oral pills. Uh, that are standardly given or with an injection uh, hormone receptor blocker called fulvestrant. And they can be given in the first line or in the second line. And when I say first and second line, what I mean is when you're first diagnosed with breast cancer, the first treatment that you are started on, that's considered first line. If that uh, combination or that medication no longer works or if the side effects are are too much, then we would switch to the next line or the second line. Uh, an, an, another more recent uh, targeted therapy that we are now combining with hormone-based medication is this medicine called alpilisib that Dr. Mayer mentioned. So PIK3CA is a mutation that is found in about 40% of women who have hormone-driven breast cancer, and that's a mutation that can be picked up on these uh, tumor genomic profiling tests. And if 
if you are found to have that mutation, then you are eligible for that medication called alpalisib in combination with fulvestrant. The, as with all medications, uh, these targeted medications do have some side effects, and so particular care needs to be uh, taken when taking these medications and when, as physicians, we're monitoring patients who are on these medications, uh, specifically with alpalisib. It can cause blood sugars to spike, uh, blood sugars to go up. So people who have diabetes are at higher risk of that, and that's something that we need to, to consider. There are several other uh, newer treatment options that are in the pipeline that are undergoing active investigation, uh, including other targeted therapies that we hope to combine with available endocrine therapies and also new types of endocrine therapies, such as uh, oral selective estrogen receptor degraders or oral forms sort of similar to fulvestrant, which is right now an injection. When it comes to chemotherapy, uh, this is an area where the, the people who are going to benefit the most are generally people with triple negative breast cancer. Uh, so chemotherapy uh, we, has been around for, for decades. Uh, it has, has been and, and remains the backbone of our uh, breast cancer treatment. Uh, and one of uh, and a, and a recent chemotherapy approval came in the form of a medication called sasetizumab govotecan or tridelvi which was approved for triple negative breast cancer. It was, an, was one of the first chemotherapy, uh, new chemotherapy medications to be approved in a number of years. Originally, it was approved in the third line as the third option for people with triple negative breast cancer, um, but actually just recently it was expanded and now is available in the second line. So that is, is a great new option for uh, our patients with triple negative breast cancer. Uh, and if, since we're on the topic of triple negative breast cancer, I want to take this time to talk a little bit more about immunotherapy, which uh, has been uh, very, uh, and a very exciting area of investigation, and there's been a lot of hope um, placed in it to, to provide significant benefits. Um, so immunotherapy uh, has been a bit controversial of late. Um, there were two uh, immunotherapy medications that were approved for triple negative breast cancer, and one of them was just removed um, by the drug company. Um, so those two medications are atezolizumab and pembrolizumab. Atezolizumab was the first immunotherapy approved for triple negative breast cancer patients whose tumors express that PD-L1 marker that Dr. Mayer mentioned. So in order to be eligible right now for immunotherapy, uh, it looks like the, the patients who benefit the most are the ones that have that PD-L1 mutation or PD-L1 marker expression. So the uh, FDA in the United States initially granted accelerated approval of atezolizumab in combination with a chemotherapy called nabpaclitaxel based on a clinical trial that showed that that combination provided an advantage in terms of how long women were able to stay on treatment and how long women lived um, in, in patients who had that pd one marker who received the pembrolizumab in combination with the nabpaclitaxel compared to people who got nabpaclitaxel alone. There was a confirmatory trial combining atezolizumab with a, with a standard form of paclitaxel that ultimately came back negative. It, it really didn't show a benefit of adding the atezolizumab 
Um, so for the last couple of years, we have been using atezolizumab in combination with nabpaclitaxel. But uh, earlier this year, uh, in August, the drug company withdrew its accelerated approval after consulting with the FDA and based on the drug company's assessment of the current treatment landscape. Um, so women who are still on atezolizumab and getting benefit from atezolizumab should be able to re remain on treatment. Um, but what this really means is that uh, it's it's not an option going forward for new for new treatment starts, but we do have a different horm uh, immunotherapy medication called pembrolizumab that can be combined with uh, nabpaclitaxel or other forms of chemotherapy, also in the first line in patients who have that PDL1 expression. So that still remains an option for triple negative breast cancer patients. Immunotherapy is also an option for people who have not so much breast cancer-specific mutations, but general mutations that we can see in multiple different types of cancers. So these are things like uh, tumor mutational burden. So when we do these genomic tests, this precision medicine test, we can see how many mutations are present in, in, in an individual tumor. And patients who have a high number of those mutations are predicted to benefit from uh, immunotherapy more than patients who have smaller numbers of mutations. And a different marker called microsatellite instability, which is another marker of DNA repair, uh, of the ability to, of DNA to, to make repairs when there are mistakes if, there, uh, if that uh, pathway is impaired or unstable, then immunotherapy is also an option, regardless of the tumor specificity, just if you have that mutation. So pembrolizumab is, a, is available for patients who have those mutations, and then there was a more recent approval of a, of a different immunotherapy medicine called dostarlamib. And then I want to move into uh, HER2-positive breast cancer, which uh, has really been, has seen the most growth and approval of new drugs in the last several years. And the advantage of HER2-positive breast cancer is they have sort of by definition that HER2 marker, that HER2 protein that can be targeted. And a lot of new medications uh, that are in development and have already been approved are targeting that HER2 protein. So several years ago, we saw the approval of a medication called pertuzumab, which is incorporated into the first line of treatment routinely with trastuzumab or Herceptin and uh, taxane chemotherapy. After pertuzumab came a medication called TDM1 um, or Ketsyla, which uh, has, has um, been given in the second line and has, has um, further improved outcomes. And then in the last couple of years, we've had uh, a number of new medications, both infusion and pill form, that have provided significant benefits. Uh, the first uh, one is a medicine called fam trastuzumab deruxtecan, or in HER2, uh, which is uh, an, one of these antibody drug conjugates. So um, Ketsyla TDM1 was the first uh, antibody drug conjugate that we saw in breast cancer. And that is a medication, what an antibody drug conjugate is, is uh, an antibody linked to a chemotherapy medicine. So in the case of HER2-positive breast cancer, we have a, a HER2-specific antibody linked to a different type of chemotherapy. And the antibody 
hones in on the HER2 expressing cancer cells. The antibody gets bound by those cells and gets internalized and then gets to release the chemotherapy payload directly into the cell. So it allows us to give medications or chemotherapy medications that maybe would be too toxic if they were just given by themselves because they are so specific to the cancer cell. So TDM1 was one of the first antibody drug conjugates that we saw, and now we have INHER2, um, which, uh, which is another one, uh, which has been very effective. We also have uh, a, a new medication called Tucatinib, which is a pill small molecule target of HER2, the HER2 protein that is combined with trastuzumab and capecitabine. And what's really exciting about tucatinib is that it has been shown to be particularly effective in people with uh, brain or central nervous system metastases, so brain, brain mats, which is really a, an area of unmet need. Um, uh, up to 50% of women with HER2-positive breast cancer can develop brain metastases and um, historically clinical trials haven't been enriching or haven't really been seeking to include women who have brain metastases, uh, but the tucatinib trial specifically looked at, at women with the, that form of metastases, and they did, they did really well. Um, so that's a really great option, uh, particularly for women with CNS metastases. Another small molecule inhibitor called neratinib was also, is also approved in combination with capecitabine. And another uh, HER2 antibody called margituximab uh, was recently approved in combination with chemotherapy. And um, all of these build off the, the foundation that trastuzumab or Herceptin established uh, about 15 years ago now uh, and are improving on on the on the outcomes that that Herceptin has 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 built. So that's uh, that's sort of an update in what's what's out there, what's what's available, what's coming. Um, I wanted I want to take a minute to talk about how clinical research increases your own treatment options. So all of the medications that I mentioned and have been mentioned and that we are offering to patients today were first studied in clinical trials. So uh, women who participated in those early studies were able to benefit themselves by getting access to new medications uh, before they're available to the general public, but they also took a risk because there's no guarantee in a clinical trial uh, until the study is complete. Uh, we, won't, we don't know if the benefits of this new medication outweigh the risks. But all of the medicines that are available today are here because of the brave women with metastatic breast cancer who came before. And so the way that clinical trial research can increase your treatment options is already the standard of care medications were initially um, investigated in clinical trials. And, um, and the clinical trials that are available to you today offer you the option or the opportunity to gain access to new medications which may improve your outcome as well and may provide significant benefit. And then finally, just a few, a few minutes to talk about prevention and management of treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort uh, in the context of COVID-19. So in terms of your uh, ability and your willingness to reach out to your care team, that hasn't changed. You should contact your care team with any questions or concerns. You should ask your doctor ahead of time about what kind of side effects uh, the medication that 
he or she is is recommending might cause and how you can prepare in advance. Uh, if there's a risk of nausea, make sure you have nausea medications on hand. If there are any underlying health conditions that may increase your risk of side effects, for example, diabetes with that new medication, Alpalisib, you're going to want to be prepared uh, and, and monitor that more closely. Other medications have risks of, of inflammation of the lungs, and so if you have already uh, baseline uh, impairment of lung function, then that's something that you want to discuss with your doctor. One of the advantages of COVID-19 uh, is that telemedicine has become essentially routine, meaning you don't have to physically go to, a, go to the doctor's office in order to meet with the doctor or the care team. And so if there's a side effect or a symptom that doesn't necessarily need to be evaluated in person, but you want um, to discuss with the doctor, then, then scheduling a telemedicine visit is something that uh, is a great option that um, I'm hoping will continue to be around even hopefully once this pandemic is over. Uh, but not being afraid to talk to your doctor about side effects to make sure that you're prepared in advance. If there are things that you've tried that haven't, that are not working well enough, then then make sure you ask for uh, for something different. Uh, if there's if if a new medication or a new chemotherapy or treatment option is being recommended, maybe you want to find something that has a different side effect profile than the medicine you were on before. So, for example, if you were on a medication that caused numbness or tingling in your hands or feet, the new medicine that you try next, uh, maybe we you, we want to look for something that's not going to make that worse. Because of the the full toolbox that we have, as Dr. Mayer mentioned, this is something that we can work with you and we can we can make decisions about different treatments based on what the side effects are likely to um, to be and also the impact on your day to day um, your day to day life. So medications that are less likely to make you tired, make you unable to do the things that you like to do. We really want to work with you to make sure that we are optimizing the quality of your life and not making it so that the treatment really is worse than the disease itself. So I will stop there and uh, and hand it back over to Carolyn to uh, and um, I look forward to the the next speakers and and also to taking your questions at the end. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Metro. That was really extraordinary. Just a wonderful presentation in terms of both presenting really this full toolbox of just all the new things that are out there for patients to consider and work with their healthcare team about, and also in terms of the management of any type of treatment side effects and being proactive with their healthcare team. So thank you, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth Jane Cathcart-Rake, and Dr. Cathcart-Rake is um, staff physician, um, hematology Oncology, St. Luke's Cancer Institute, St. Luke's Cancer Specialist in Breast Cancer. And uh, Dr. Cathcart Rake will be addressing communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, the increasing role of telehealth and telemedicine appointments, and guidelines to prepare um, for telehealth telemedicine appointments, um, including technology, list of questions, and open notes discussion. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cathcott Rake. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mesner, for having me, and thank, thank you, everyone, for 
being on this important call. This has just been wonderful for all of us to get together and be able to talk with you about um, about metastatic breast cancer. So, um, gosh, as, as all the speakers have mentioned so far, um, the treatment of metastatic breast cancer is, is all about balancing your quantity of life. So our goal to help you live is as long of a, a life as possible, and then also balancing that, though, with your quality of life. And um, for everyone, that balance may look a little bit different. Um, everyone has different priorities and and um, different hopes for the way the, the um, weeks and months and years um, are spent. And so um, it's really important to be able to communicate with your healthcare provider about um, what what is important to you and things that may affect your individual cancer journey. So um, I, I think this communication is important at every step in your in the cancer course, both at your diagnosis and then also as, as things change over time and as your life changes over time. And this might help um, help prepare you for specific side effects of treatment. It might um, also help prepare your doctor for, you know, the concerns that you might bring forward and and ways in which to tailor your treatment to your needs. So um, the the specifics of this moving forward really depend on, on the things that are important to you to bring up with your doctor. So, for instance, um, travel. So in the era of COVID, this has become much more fraught and much more difficult. Um, but it still may be very important for you, for instance, to go visit family or to go visit a, a, a special place, something that you're really excited about or looking forward to. Um, these things are still possible. Um, it just may look a little bit different in the era of COVID or in the era of what your treatment course is like. So if there's something like that, a, a trip or um, a trip that you're hoping to take, I think it's really important to bring that up as soon as possible just so you can kind of figure out the timing of that and figure out how to how to make that happen when it needs to happen. Um, other things to communicate are, are the people that are important to you. So your support network, folks that you want at your appointments or involved in decision making. It's important to think about that for yourself, you know, the people that you want present when you're having difficult or important conversations with your doctor, but also the people that you want to see. And if there are people that you want to see in different areas, um, you know, or, or gosh, if you're, um, you know, you're a, a caregiver for kids or grandkids or something like that, that's really important to let your doctor know. So again, they can tailor their treatments to days that that you want to be feeling better and um, or days that you can take more rest. The other thing is your hobbies, is communicating, um, you know, gosh, I, I had a, a patient, for instance, who um, had got a, a lot of joy out of playing the piano. And so um, to her, um, being able to avoid any type of neuropathy or numbness and tingling of her fingers that would influence her way or ability to play the piano was really important. And so we um, we avoided medicines that were more likely to contribute to that um, and were really active about managing and preventing side effects such as that. So um, things that make that make that bring you joy, it's really important to bring those up 
because there are ways that we can help protect those things, ways that we can help maximize those joyful times for you um, with your therapy plan. Um, it's also important to bring up specific worries you have. I think a wonderful thing um, about um, um, the breast cancer community is the fact that there's so much communication between um, women living with breast cancer. Um, but I also think that one of the downsides of this is just, gosh, you hear a lot about potential side effects, um, things that other women have gone through that have really changed their their view or um, the way that they've gone through treatment. And so that may contribute to a lot of anxiety and worries that you have about specific side effects or specific treatments. Bring those up because, gosh, we can tell you in our experience this only happens to to one person out of every 100. Um, we can help put that in context. Um, but if that's on your mind, gosh, we'd rather be able to address that with you up front so that you feel really comfortable and really confident in your treatment plan moving forward and know that our goal is to manage that that symptom and to follow that symptom along with you. So it's important to communicate all things that are really important to your quality of life um, and um, but make particular attention to things like trips, family members, hobbies, or any specific side effects that you have specific concerns about as well. Um, as, as the other speakers have mentioned, gosh, we have a number of tools in our toolkit and an increasing number of tools in our toolkit that we can use to treat metastatic breast cancer. And so, gosh, if, if one option isn't a good option for one reason, reason or another, including quality of life concerns, we are absolutely going to, going to um, be mindful of that and talk about other options with you. One thing, um, again, in the setting of the pandemic is, is the role of telehealth and telemedicine. And um, this has just become a, a, another uh, resource for us to be able to communicate and work with, with our patients much more closely. So telehealth, telemedicine appointments can be really helpful for a number of different types of visits. I think it can be really helpful for um, symptoms that come up or side effects of chemotherapy that are bothersome to you, um, but don't require urgent or emergent um, in, uh, recommendations. So certainly emergencies um, where you're feeling dizzy, lightheaded, chest pain, fevers, those things still require in-person visits and emergent care. But things like you know numbness and tingling increasing when you're on a medicine um, where you're maybe in between doses are a perfect opportunity to use the telehealth or telemedicine appointment and may help support your quality of life by not having to come in and drive in and see the doctor and park and all of those things. I think they can also be helpful, increasingly helpful for folks who are just a little more limited in terms of mobility. It just saves you a trip in. Um, this is also a telehealth, telemedicine is also a way to involve more or different family members in decision making. So everyone um, views telemedicine, telehealth differently. I have some folks who much rather talk about, you know, important things in person when I can see them face to face. And I appreciate that as well. Um, but I also have a few folks 
who much prefer a telehealth or telemedicine appointment to talk about things like scan results because we, we aren't allowing a large amount of visitors in our clinic still because of the pandemic. And that's a way that they can be surrounded by all of the, all of the people in their family who want to be present. Um, and we can be on video with everyone so we can, and you can see facial expressions sometimes a little better that way too. So that's something to think about is just what you, if that would be helpful for you, what people you would like involved in different visits and to communicate that with your healthcare team as well. Um, Another potential role for telehealth and telemedicine is second opinions. Um, there are several cancer centers who've been offering um, increasing kind of second opinion appointments via telemedicine. It's not everywhere, though, so um, it's something to think about if you're interested in getting a second opinion or want to be seen by a specific um, a specific department or, or um, cancer center. It's reasonable to reach out if um, traveling there isn't a possibility. Now, I will say if you're considering a clinical trial, they will want to see you in person and, um, and sometimes for treatment decisions that's needed as well. Um, but just something to investigate if, if um, that's interesting to you or important to you. In terms of preparing for telehealth or telemedicine appointments, um, there's several things that you can do to make that visit the most successful. Uh, the first thing is making sure that, that you have a compatible device and that your device is working and, and um, is able to interact on the telehealth platform. And that's, I, I, I know that seems like a no-brainer, but believe me, gosh, that can save a lot of headache because you think things are going to work well and then you get on the call and they don't, and that's always just uh, frustrating, frustrating for everybody. So I think it's always good to have a, a visit with the IT folks um, before you start and just make sure that you're all set up for a telehealth appointment for your first one um, and have them walk you through it. And then I think it's also important to, um, if to, to plan the scene. You know, make sure if there are certain people that you want there and present that they know the time, they know that, gosh, it may, um, you know, they, it may be, uh, the, the physician may be running late, so make sure to plan a plenty of time for that type of visit, um, but make sure you have those folks with you at the time of your appointment. The other thing is to write down a list of questions, just like for your in-person visits. I think it can be really helpful to, to, to think about um, what, you know, what the next treatment might mean, what um, what side effects you might expect, and to talk um, to talk with your physicians about specific concerns that you have before those changes are made. Um, I think it's always helpful to just write them down, and then if they're not addressed during the appointment, you have an, a, a list there, so you're not feeling like you're put being put on the spot. And then just jot questions down between between your visits so that you're very prepared when you come in. Certainly, of course, if you think of questions after visits, that's what we are all here for. We're all here to help you and answer questions at any time, but that just helps you make the most out of your visit so, so you, don't, you don't feel like you're rushing to try to remember what it, what it was that you wanted to ask about. Um, so in, in general, um, please know that your quality of life is of utmost importance to us 
um, and your provider team in general, um, please communicate issues, concerns that you have up front, and really every step through the course of your treatment and your journey, um, because we want to support you. Um, you know, think about telehealth, telemedicine's, telemedicine appointments, um, and think about how they might be helpful for you, either with, you know, acute visits where it's not emergent, or maybe even more treatment decisions or discussions of scans. For everybody, that might look different. Some folks may feel comfortable with that. Others might not, and it's completely up to you. And then just try to try to um, prepare as well as you can for those telehealth appointments, both from a, a logistical standpoint of, um, you know, of making sure you have all the technology together, but also in terms of jotting down some notes and um, during the appointment and, and having some questions prepared so you feel like, you know, your visit was, was successful and helpful for you. So I, I hope this is helpful, and we certainly all look forward to hearing, hearing your feedback and your questions moving forward. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Cathcart-Rake. That was really, um, really excellent and just a wonderful um, focus on quality of life and communicating with the healthcare team. Um, just so, such important issues, and so thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Mantha Fortune, and Ms. Fortune is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, and she'll be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As mentioned, my name is Sam, and I'm an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include case management, counseling, support groups, education workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. As an oncology social worker at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and family impacted by cancer diagnosis. Individuals diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group or engaging in counseling. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations also offer supportive services. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers specific metastatic breast cancer support groups online. The Metastatic Breast Cancer Online Support Group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of hope and empowerment, provide practical information about treatment and resources, and address ways to communicate with one's medical team and loved ones. Our support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by a professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members can register to join. You must be you must register online to join the, through Cancer Care. Um, you can go to cancercare.org and then select our services and then select support groups. After completing the registration process on our website, members can participate by posting in the groups 24 hours, seven days a week. Individuals also may experience practical and financial concerns throughout their treatment. Please know that if you are encountering such financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care has a case management services, which are short-term strength-based approach to patients and caregivers affected by cancer. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. 
If you are interested in learning more about the support services we offer at Cancer Care, I encourage you to call our National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis impacts an individual as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. It's been such a pleasure to be part of this informative program. Thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to allow me to speak today. And I'll turn the program back to you, Dr. Messner, now. Oh, thank you so much, Sam. That was wonderful. Just a wonderful presentation and just wonderful resources um, that are available to our participants um, by contacting Cancer Care. And if, our, if we don't have those resources, of course, we'll refer you other places that have them, we will definitely coordinate as many services for you as possible. And now, before we move on to the Q&A, I just have a few parting questions to ask all of you. So I'm going to um, uh, uh, just go over uh, just a few uh, end-of-program questions for you. And so I'm going to start with the, this question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the current standard of care for metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of new treatment approaches, including biomarkers, diagnostic testing, technologies, and sequencing of treatments for metastatic breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the role of precision medicine in treatment decisions about metastatic breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the specific questions to ask the healthcare team and in utilizing their tips and suggestions about preventing and managing the treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain of metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in including participating in clinical trials as a treatment option for metastatic breast cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I just want to thank everyone for participating in um, in addressing these questions, it really helps us as we plan all of our future workshops um, to have your feedback both before the program starts and now um, as we're about to conclude. But we now have, but hang on, because we now have questions um, from our, our experts um, on the call today. And so um, I'm going to ask Michelle to explain to all of you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. 
And we have a question for one of our online participants. Um, it's a good question. I'm going to ask Dr. Mayer if she could address that. What is the difference between metastatic and metastasis? Thanks so much. That That's actually a, a great question, and it's so important to understand all of these words and, and the terminology that, that we all use. So metastatic is a word we use to describe the stage of breast cancer. Stage refers to how much cancer is in the body and where is it. The uh, breast cancer is staged in three stages, one, two, three, four. Sorry, it's four stages. And um, stages one through three refer to breast cancer that's limited to the breast and the nearby lymph node areas. Stage four breast cancer is what we call metastatic breast cancer. And that means that breast cancer has left the breast and lymph node area and has traveled, usually through the bloodstream, to a distant part of the body. For example, uh, an organ like lung or liver or bones. Now, if we find breast cancer in these places, if we do a biopsy and find cancer, it's still breast cancer. It's not liver cancer. It's not lung cancer. It is breast cancer. But we call it metastatic breast cancer to indicate that it has left the breast and gone somewhere else. And so this is what we call stage 4 disease. Now, any one of those spots that we might see on a scan or we might biopsy, we would call that a metastatic spot or metastatic tumor, meaning a tumor or, or a, a region of cancer that has spread. So it, it's a, a subtle difference between those two words, but they're referring to the same what we would call disease state, meaning cancer that has spread in the body and falls under that stage four metastatic category. Excellent. Thank you so much. And another question from one of our online participants, um, and that question is um, uh, for um, for Dr. Metro, if a metastatic patient achieves no evidence of disease, should she remain indefinitely on treatment? Uh, that's a that's a really good question and and one that we think about uh, also. Um, when when somebody is diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer, technically they the thought is that they will always have metastatic breast cancer. And even if there is a complete response on imaging and, and there's nothing that we can see with the naked eye, it doesn't mean for certain that there are not microscopic cancer cells hiding out somewhere else in the body that, if treatment were to stop, could over time grow and become tumors again somewhere else. Um, we really don't know the answer to that question there. It, it um Part of it depends on how long you've been on treatment without any evidence of disease. Uh, certainly, if there have been a number of years um, with no nothing seen on scans, then then it's something to talk about with your doctor. But um, there's always a risk if you were to stop treatment that the cancer could come back. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks very much. And um, I hope that's helpful. And um, our next question from our online participants for Dr. Cathcart Rake. Um, there does not seem to be a consistent protocol for assessing the effectiveness of um, metastatic breast cancer treatment. Some oncologists prefer CAT scans, bone scans, or both. Some prefer MRIs or PET scans. Is this driven by insurance companies, or how is how is this decision made in terms of how to follow patients? Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. Um, so... 
you're you're exactly right. So there are different ways to follow um, to follow cancer over the course of time. Um, either CTs with bone scan or PET scan are perfectly reasonable um, by guideline to follow over time. And then certainly things like MRI, um, um, MRI of the brain, if, if someone has new um, symptoms or known brain lesions that's added on, um, or even other MRIs of other areas if it's hard to see or, or difficult to, to know what's um, uh, know what's going on based on, say, just the CAT scan alone. Um, so these these imaging modalities are all very reasonable. Um, I do, um, we do tend to, if we start with one, tend to like to follow using that same imaging strategy moving forward. So we're comparing apples to apples. So if we start, so either PET or CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis with a bone scan is perfectly reasonable up front. But if we start with one, we want to make sure that that's the one that we follow in three months or six months so we can compare apples to apples there and know that we're, we're seeing change from one imaging study to another. Um, unfortunately, insurance can, can affect this decision. Um, there are some insurance companies who won't pay for a PET scan um, or will only pay for one or two PET scans throughout a full year, and that does um, um, that does uh, cause some of us to to favor, say, a CT scan instead, just so you're not forced to pay a number of out of patient uh, out of pocket costs, for instance. But a CT scan is still a very very reasonable imaging strategy as long as we follow kind of the same imaging strategy throughout treatment. Excellent, thank you. Um, and for um, this uh, question, the question from one of our participants, um, again, is just to um, have a little bit more sense of how they can get some emotional and social support um, uh, for um, coping with metastatic um, uh, breast cancer. If you could just comment on that as well. Yeah, so um, there's a couple support services available. Um, at Cancer Care Pacifically, we do have metastatic support groups, which I was mentioning earlier. So um, if this is for yourself, you're more than welcome to enroll on our website. Um, we also have publications that go over um, how to cope with um, give even the coping strategies of like deep breathing exercises or mindfulness exercises to help you navigate, especially if you're having like a rough day with chemo or, or whatnot. And then also too, it's also reaching out to like your treatment center because your treatment center may have different programs throughout the year as well for different um, ways to cope and like even local support groups. Excellent. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all of our speakers. And this has been an extraordinary call. And I must say, we probably could go on for another hour because there are just so many questions. Um, and um, so I realize that um, I want to address all of you who still have questions and, and what to do. So for those of you who either asked a question today or have a question that you didn't get to ask or are thinking of questions you'd like to ask, um, I would recommend that you all, in any of those categories, go back to your treating healthcare team and ask them because they also know the most about you. So that's really important to do, um, to really go back and, and, and ask them the questions that you asked today or that you would have liked to ask. 
Um, in addition, um, we also will be sending you a SurveyMonkey evaluation um, probably tomorrow um, uh, based on this program and on Monday. And basically, um, you'll be getting all types of resources or places, other additional resources to call. But your healthcare team is a wonderful place to start. They are indeed um, the group that they, again, know you the very best. But we do want you to go to credible resources um, when you ask questions. And I think as one of our speakers pointed out during the call, that's Sometimes, you know, you could be on a site where people are posing side effects that they're having that are very rare, that they may not affect you. And so, again, you want to vet this past your healthcare team. That's very important. And as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with metastatic breast cancer. I think, as Ms. Fortune pointed out, there are many support programs available for you, and we want you to take advantage of those programs um, and so that you do not feel that you're alone in coping with this or that you don't have a resource that's credible to go to for your help and support. I also, for those of you who have um, HER2, a breast metastatic breast cancer, um, we do have a program coming up actually um, next week um, on uh, Wednesday the 13th. And uh, please, if you haven't signed up for that already, please do. And we have many more programs coming up, October being Breast Cancer Awareness Month. There are many, many programs, um, both the Cancer Office and many other groups offer, and um, we will give you a listing of those groups that are out there that you can contact as well. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.